I got to the point where I didn't so much care if I stepped on the IED and, you know, got hurt or died. Like I kind of took my life out of it. I was more concerned and worried about everyone else and everyone that was with me. Welcome to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members transition from military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including nightmares, rage, and isolation. Participants in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting the Veterans.org and donations are always welcome at the Veterans.org slash donate. Thank you for embarking on this educational journey with the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Here's today's segment. Good morning. Hello, I am Mike Orban, and welcome to another educational edition of Stigma-Free Vet Zone. We are here overlooking the Milwaukee River in downtown West Bend. And today we are going to head down to Pewaukee, Wisconsin, and the R&R House and our guest, Peter Baruki. And let me tell you a little bit about Peter. Peter is a peer support specialist at the R&R House, and he'll be sharing more on the R&R House in his uh, presentation today. Peter served active duty in the United States Army from June 2010 to October 2013. Peter's job in the Army was infantry. He, st- he was stationed at Fort Rain. He was stationed at Fort Wainwright, Alaska, under 1st Striker Brigade Combat Team, 25th Infantry, 3rd Battalion, 21st Infantry Regiment from April 2011 to April 2012. Peter deployed to Afghanistan to support Operation Enduring Freedom. During his tour in Afghanistan, Peter engaged in over 100 combat missions and received a Purple Heart from injuries sustained in combat. In his spare time, Peter enjoys reading and spending his time outdoors, hiking, camping, and gardening. That is mighty impressive, Peter. So welcome. Let's go down to Pewaukee R in our house and welcome in Peter Baruki. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Thanks for having me here today. Oh, it is, it's, it's our honor. Let's get right to it. Let's go. We had spoken, obviously, before today. And just tell us a little bit about Peter, your background before the military. Yeah, so I was born and raised in Wisconsin. I grew up in Waukesha. Um, I, you know, I was, uh, I was adopted, so I was raised by, consider my, they're my parents, my mom and dad. Um, I was adopted as a baby, and I ho- have an older brother who was also adopted from a different family. Um, my, my dad, um, the, raised me, my dad, um, he, was, he was in the military for about 21 years. He was active army for a while, then switched to the National Guard and was in the National Guard. Um, my mom had a lot of different jobs too, but had a really just good childhood, basic, you know, just not too eventful, it was peaceful, loved it. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, that, that's, that's an impressive story. Uh, I, I didn't realize that in our conversations. We had never talked about the, you being adopted and having an adopted brother from a different family. That, that's quite a, a complex family system. Yeah, no, it's, um, I, I think pretty much my whole life I was new adopted. I don't remember when my parents told me, but I just always remember knowing. I don't know too much about my birth parents, but what I do know is they are both, they were also both in the military. They're both in the National Guard. They actually both served with my dad who ended up adopting me. So my, my dad actually knew both my birth parents. Wow. That that is fascinating. So did your uh, adopted brother uh, serve in the military? No, no. uh, Me and him are uh, complete polar opposites. (laughs) (laughs) Adoption will do that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, The whole uh, nature first nurture debate. So. Right. So what about sports, music, pets, any of that sort of thing going on when you were a kid? A lot of pets. We, when I was growing up, we've had, uh, we had two dogs, we had two cats, we had a bird, we had fish, we had a Guinea pig at one point. (laughs) So yeah, we we had animals, uh, sports. I didn't do a whole lot. Um, I did like through like elementary school, middle school, I did a lot of cross country and running stuff like that. Um, didn't really do any sports in high school. Uh, you know, high school, I mainly just worked, played a lot of video games. Um, well, that's a sport <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> of, of some sort. So, so now Peter, you get ready to, uh, make this adjustment and go into the military. Was, was there something in particular that, uh, sparked your interest or, uh, how did that happen? Well, a couple of things, you know, I think I always planned, even from us, a little kid, always joined the military. You know, I grew up watching, you know, all the different war movies and documentaries. You know, um, I, I love history. I'm big into history. So always reading about different stuff, military. Um, my dad, who was in for 21 years, definitely a big factor. You know, I just thought that was so cool how much time you spend in the military. And, you know, I really looked up to him for that. And, you know, knowing that both my uh, birth parents were in the military, too, it kind of felt like a way for me to connect with them without really knowing them. So there's a lot of different factors of me joining the military. Oh, my goodness. There certainly are. And very good ones, very positive ones. So your entry uh, was very positive. And what year did you actually enter into the military? So I, um, it was about a week after I turned 17. Uh, Armory recruiter called me. And it's like, hey, would you be interested in joining, you know, military? And it's always one of those things I thought about. And, you know, college was never really for me. I, you know, I love learning. Uh, you know, I, I'm always read different books. I like learning, but college just never really appealed to me. So I'm like, yeah, let's go hear them out. Me and my dad went and talked to a recruiter. And about a week or two later, uh, at 17, I signed up for the Army. Wow. Sound, signed up at 17 to enter when you were 18 or signed up at yeah. 17 to enter when you were 17? So so with it, so since I was going infantry, because um, when, you, when you're when you 17, there's some MOSs where they'll send you to basic during summer. Um, but like with infantry, they don't do that. So I joined when I was still a junior in high school. So I had to finish up high school. Um, and then when I graduated, I was 18 and I graduated on June 12th. And I left for the army on June twenty second. Wow! So, so your final year in high school, you're a senior. Are you walking around with your your chest all puffed out? And, and <laughs> well, that was funny. So I was a pretty well behaved kid at school. I never got in trouble or anything. And our beginning our senior year, my counselor uh, called me in just to see what like if I had plans for after high school. 
I've never met a counselor before, never talked to the counselor before, you know, and introducing is like, well, I, you know, Peter, I just want to get to know you. Do you have any plans? What are you doing? You know, I have noticed you haven't put applications in for college or anything. I'm like, well, actually, I joined the army last year. So, <laughs> those are conversations. So, I had a five minute <laughs> conversation with a counselor all through high school. Kind of ended his responsibility toward you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that's a good story. So, now you, you've decided, made your decision. You've had a year to think about this that, yeah. through, through high school. You haven't changed your mind. What are your expectations when you actually get there? Are you anxious? Uh, how's your family thinking about this? Your mom, your dad, your brother? My um, my parents were they're they're proud of me, but they're definitely really anxious and um, you know worried. When I first joined, I did lie to my parents and told them I was just going to be a truck driver, um, just because it seemed a little safer or whatnot. You know, because they they were very adamant of me not going infantry. So I like, yeah, truck driver. When I was actually shipping, I'm like, oh, by the way, I'm actually infantry. Um, so they, they, they weren't too happy with me when I dropped that dropped that on them. Yeah. But they, they were very supportive. All right. So so now you're you're getting ready to leave. And what year now are we getting ready to leave in to enter the military? So when I went to basic, that had been um, June of 2010. 2010. So the war in Afghanistan and Iraq have been going on for nine years already, pretty yeah. much. So, so that's well established. You know that's out there. A mother's love is always uh, to be afraid of her child when they enter the military. Were, were your parents and your family, your, your brother there when you left to go? And did you have a ceremony to enter? And uh, my, my parents were there. My brother wasn't. I think my brother was in California or someplace at the time. He he moved around a lot. I don't. I don't remember where he was, but he wasn't there. Yeah. Um, but there was some ceremony, the pride of joining the military and all that sort of yeah. thing. And so now you, you hop on the bus or the truck or wherever you are, and you, you enter the military, and you have expectations of what? So my expectation, well, one, I knew joining during wartime and joining infantry, I knew there'd be some point that most likely I'd be going to either Iraq or Afghanistan. with nowhere, but I, you know, I, I just knew especially if the job I chose, most likely I would end up there. Um, really, my expectations was I, I just really thought it would be the best thing for me, really make me to, you know, adult, you know, at the time I'm still an 18-year-old kid. You know, I've lived with my parents my whole life. You know, we've done some traveling, but, you know, I really haven't seen the world, haven't really met too many different cultures. You know, I've read about them, read about stuff, but, you know, never really got experience. So I thought, you know, Join the military would really get me to open my eyes and really see the world in a whole different uh, perspective. Which is coming up. That will happen. <laughs> so, so now you, you've got a, a really good attitude. You're, you're positive about this. Let me ask you right here, after you get through basic and uh, advanced infantry training uh, or advanced individual training, however you want to look at that, yeah. uh, what was your, your belief in the mission? Did, did you believe in the mission, whatever that was before you? So... There's things I don't, I didn't really agree with some of the stuff that we were in war for, but I do agree with the mission. You know, with the, with the United States, I always thought we did have a responsibility, especially being, you know, having the most powerful military and being such a world leader where we should try to do our best and set examples for other people and other countries and try to hand either, you know, whatever way, um, that we should. And this is where, you know, like I said, there's stuff with the wars I, I don't agree with, but I did agree with the mission and 
I knew no matter what, regardless of me being in the military, these wars would still be going on. If it wasn't me going over there, it'd be some other kid going over there. And I just knew, you know, I can mentally prepare myself for this, where I know I can go there and handle this. Could someone else, if they had to, you know, take my slot, would they be able to go over and handle it? So I more just took a responsibility for myself that I will go and do, you know, go to war rather than have someone else have to take that spot. That's remarkable thinking, Peter, for, for that age, just turning 18, that you would have those insights and be aware of them. Uh, but back to the mission, I don't want to stay there a long time. So you were, you were okay with the mission. Did, do you think this helped you through your time there that this was something not just about Peter, but about the mission? Did that mission responsibility stay with you? Yeah, yes, um, especially w- when I was in Afghanistan, because a big, a big part of our mission at the time was this cold coin, essentially trying to win hearts and minds of you know people over there, and that really helped me keep it in perspective. Of, you know, we're just not there because we're at we're at war, but we're also here to try to help locals. You know, if it's even a, you know help engineers, you know, pull security for engineers build a school help build roads so people can get to places easier, you know, um, make sure, you know, people have access to medical supplies, water. And that, that really helped me to, you know, deal with the fact, yeah, we're over here for war, but in at least a small way, we're trying to help even if it's one person, we're, we're here for that. So you're helping to rebuild the infrastructure and in some cases probably build a new infrastructure that never existed before. And I, th- I think that's really an important point that this helped balance the emotion, I would think, balance the, the effects of the, the mission of war. So now as you're going there, you, you left for Afghanistan in what year? That would have been April of uh, 2011. It was actually, I shipped out the day after they announced that we got uh, bin Laden. Oh, wow. So you were aware of that. So did that change the attitude for going over there? It, a little bit. It, it, it got me nervous. Because, you know, um, I, like I said, I do a lot of reading and things. I try to stay informed. And, you know, Bin Laden was, you know, essentially the, the head of this, you know, organization. And knowing, like, any organization, when the leader's gone, there's going to be a lot of chaos. You know, there's going to be, you know, disorganization. There's So I was a little nervous for a fact of now, you know, before we, we had an enemy, we had a target, we knew, you know, we had a face. Now it's like, okay, now what's going to happen? Who's go- are there people going to take over? Is this going to start more conflicts? Or yeah, really? I, I, it, will there be p- people fighting for leadership? And and yeah, yeah, who knows? I mean, it could all be in your imagination. So now you're there in Afghanistan, 2011, and you are an infantry soldier. Share with us a little bit of the experiences there were that, that you experienced in Afghanistan that uh, stand out the most for you. Well, it was definitely hot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, one of my first thoughts when we finally, because so when I first got to Afghanistan, we went to Kandahar, which is one of the um, biggest bases is where most people fly in and out of. And from there, we that's where we go to, like where we're actually going to be posted, stationed. So, you know, spending a couple of days in Kandahar, you know, it didn't really hit me yet because, you know, they have, you know, a few restaurants, places you can eat, you know, they have TV, they have, you know, AC, all this stuff. So it's like, yeah, I'm in Afghanistan, but, you know, relatively safe and all that. 
once we finally got to where we're going, which was um, south of um, Kandahar, which was the boonies, there's nothing out there. You know, that's where it really hit me. I remember when I first was looking around the environment and, you know, there wasn't a lot of buildings because it was um, a very like agricultural area of Afghanistan. Um, you know, one side of us was desert, the rest was essentially mountains, but where we were was farmland. And, you know, I, you know, like looking back, it's like, duh, it should think there's farmland in Afghanistan. But like when you see all these pictures, movies and stuff, you never really think of crops actually growing in some of these places in the <laughs> Middle East. And it's like, yeah, well, duh, you know, yeah. they, they're humans too. They have to, you know, um, but looking around and just seeing crops, you know, uh, like great fields, um, a lot of poppy fields, but a lot of different stuff too. And, but everything was old. There, there were no roads. There's no power lines. There's, you know, all the structures are, you know, made out of, you know, straw, um, mud, you know, I feel like just staring and looking at it, it's the same thing that like when Alexander the Great came through or all these other nations throughout time came through, like it, it's never changed yeah. for thousands of years. It has looked pretty much the same. So you're stepping back in history. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. I understand that. I get that. That's a powerful point to know with your interaction with the locals, with the people friendly, did they welcome you? Did you trust them? Uh, uh, definitely didn't trust them uh, really with the locals there. They, I wouldn't say they were on any side or supported anyone. They supported whoever supported them at that time or whoever they could get the biggest bang for their buck at the time. Um, like the, the children constantly would you know, always come up, um, try to steal stuff off of our uniforms, you know, take pens or whatever, try to get whatever they could from us. You know, we um, with that, you know, we'd be on guard duty like in our towers and stuff, and the kids would have slingshots and shoot rocks at us um, just because just give them something to do. Like for them, that was their entertainment. Like, oh, let's shoot rock, you know, rocks at these American GIs because they knew we, we wouldn't do any, you know, we're not going to retaliate because um, we, you know, we had orders like, yeah, just sit there and let kids essentially shoot rocks at you. You know, there's people with bloody noses, banged up fingers. Really? And, America. Yeah. So that's very courageous of ch of children to take their slingshots and fire at somebody who's carrying a submachine gun or machine guns and rockets <laughs> and grenades. But I suppose they got used to that. So, so now let's go on and speak about some of the experiences that you shared with me earlier, Peter. Uh, where your job was in, in and I, I obviously uh, am aware of this, have familiar with this in, in clearing roads. Um, share that with us, Peter. Yeah. So I was infantry, but anyone, most people in the military and anyone who's infantry knows like your job is infantry just isn't being infantry. You have a lot of different hats to fill. And um, one of the responsibilities I was, was uh, um, we called him uh, a Valen. So I was a Valen operator, was essentially like a mine detector. So whenever we went out on patrols and missions, I was always a guy out front on point and had to, you know, with this Valen clear to make sure there were no um, IEDs because in the area we're at, there was a lot of IED chatter. You know, we got a lot of chatter. They were planning IEDs. We've encountered a bunch, um, a lot. <laughs> Um, actually, so it's my job to, you know, make sure that me and everyone who's behind me would stay clear of these IEDs and we can mark them, get EOD or someone out there to, you know, um, detonate them, to explode them so we can continue with our mission. Uh, explain IED. 
just for so our So ID, uh, imp improvised explosive device. So um, they, they can be made out of pretty much anything. So essentially like homemade landmines. You know, there's different kinds. There's pressure plates where if you step on it, it, you know, um, connects and blows up. There's, you know, uh, ones that they'll use cord or they'll use cell phones. So there's a lot of different methods of how they detonate them and how we have to find them as well, um, depending what it is. You know, there's times where, like, if I did pick up something on my um, Valen, um, which, you know, essentially just a nice metal detector. And when you, in a country where, you know, there's this garbage everywhere because there's no garbage men coming up collecting, you know, it's really hard to, okay, did I, you know, pick up garbage or is there something here? So you have to look for different signs. Like you look in the sand, see if like maybe there's a trail of like where a wire might be or different markings, you know, they'll put, you know, um, like a kite in a tree to mark it. Like, Hey, this is, you know, we have ID here. There's one that we found where in a tree, they literally carved, IED and had an arrow pointing down that road. Like, and and oh, these yeah. markings weren't for you. They were for yeah. the people that set them and for people so, who no, might want. They were for the people that set them. Yeah. But yeah. we had to look out for them. Right. And that's because these were their markings, so they knew where they put their own IEDs. Right. So we had to learn how to find them and find these markings. We are speaking with a former Army infantry soldier, Peter Baruch. He was down in Pewaukee, Wisconsin, who's sharing this experience in Afghanistan as, as a minesweeper, really, uh, clearing the roads. Uh, you say this so casually now when you're speaking about this, but the garbage that's on the street, how cleverly they could, they could hide these IEDs. So it could be uh, an, an empty milk carton that's going to explode. Uh, well, the the stress on you had to be extraordinary that any of this could, could explode at any time. Yeah, and actually a lot of stuff was made out of garbage because um, you'd be amazed what you could make the stuff out of. Um, all of our garbage there, we had to burn and destroy any piece of garbage we had just so none of the locals would take it and essentially make, you know, bombs and IEDs and stuff out of our own stuff. So, for example, I know this, I've experienced this before in Vietnam. They, they would take old tin cans and cut them up into little shards, and that would be the shrapnel that's in something that's exploding. But, yeah. uh, again, you're walking down the street, so uh, these roads, all of it, anything and everything could be where they have cleverly hidden this IED. And how many times were you successful or unsuccessful at actually uh, actually detecting it before before something happened? Well, I, I, I found a few. Um, we overall did find quite a bit. Um, there's a few I didn't find that, uh, I'll put it this way, end up finding us. I ended up being uh, blown up by six IEDs while I was in Afghanistan. Uh, th three of them were while I was in vehicles, so our vehicles got hit, and uh, three of them were while I was on foot, um, I'd say within 10, 15, within 10 feet of the blast. That, that's just true. And when you say six of these, these were six individual experiences, not yes. uh, you didn't run into six of them all at one time. Yeah. So what are the effects of this? Uh, the stress, number one, because we're, you know, we're, as infantry soldiers is about survival, not just for ourselves, but for the guys that are with us. So you're under a, a, an enormous pressure, uh, I, I would guess, whether however you accepted it, not just the pressure of staying alive yourself, but you've got to protect these other guys from from these things. Uh, that that would be your primary job. So is there a stress level that you're unfamiliar yeah. with? 
That was that was honestly my biggest stress. I got to the point where I didn't so much care if I stepped on the IED and you know got hurt or died. Like I kind of took my life out of it. I was more concerned and worried about everyone else and everyone that was with me because they they were my family, they were my life, they were everyone to me, you know. And I was more concerned about them than I was concerned about my own safety. And uh, I mean, there was times where, where I think I picked something up, wasn't sure if it's an ID, wasn't sure it's trash, you know, tried looking, can't find anything, but don't know and got to continue a mission. And there's times like, well, you know what, I got to walk forward regardless. It's either it, it's either it's my problem now, or it's not going to be my problem one way or other after, after it know, explodes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So if you were going out, again, I don't want to belabor this. How long would you actually, in any one particular day, would you be the only person on point? So if you started like this mission at 8 o'clock in the morning, would you have to be the person uh, actually mind-sweeping that entire day, or would you take time off? I mean, after an hour or two, that's got to get to you, where you would hope yeah, that somebody... Um, it, it, I guess it would depend on the mission. Most of the time, yes, it would just be me. But if we were doing bigger missions where we had different like platoon elements or even like a company sites element, then yeah, we'd have different operators switching back and forth. But majority of the time, um, it, yeah, it would usually just be me. And, and so on these six different events where the IED actually did explode, this is where you, you received your Purple Heart. And mm-hmm. I'm, I, I can only guess that, you, you must have hearing problems today. The effects, are there other effects on you, long-term effects that come from these explosions near you? Yeah, well, I've had a lot of um, concussions, as you can imagine. Um, so I do, sometimes, like, my memory just will not cooperate with me. Um, <laughs> I'm not laughing at you. At I'm, just, I'm, surp- <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah. So um, I do, uh, I do have uh, TBI, uh, like tr- uh, traumatic uh, brain injury. So I, I've, you know, dealt with that. Um, hearing loss, yeah, because so most of these events were on different days, but the second and third time were the same day that I was blown up. And sometime between um, those two ID blasts, there was a stone that launched itself in my eardrum and did uh, perforate my eardrum. So I do have hearing damage and um, yeah, aches and pains there. <laughs> so, so this stone was really a, a piece of shrapnel. That yeah. found that actually entered into your ear and was stopped by your eardrum. I mean, with, so with any more f- pressure, this could have gone further into into your skull. Mm-hmm. My goodness, yeah. my goodness, that's something. Okay, so so finish up your your experience for the audience in Afghanistan. How anything else that you would like to share in that particular uh, experience while you're getting ready to leave to go home, and what your expectations were when you left Afghanistan to go home. Well, first, you know, um, talk about all the bad that happened there. There was good stuff I liked. Um, one thing, every time I was on guard duty at night, I would just appreciate is just looking up at the stars. With, I mean, there was zero light pollution there. So to just be able to look at the, you know, the universe and look at all these stars, it was just beautiful. And it really, to me, it put it in perspective, like how small we really are. And how small the world is when you can just see how big the universe is and see all the different stars and constellations and everything. So that I that I truly uh, appreciate and still look back to 
at this day. So, would you say that you looked up and appreciated it, or did you absolutely marvel at it? You marvel. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure if someone saw me in guard duty, I was probably drooling a little bit or something. I don't know. <laughs> it really is a marvel. Did you ever sit and look at the stars and think, triangulate a little bit in it and think to yourself, I can see the star, and so can my parents at the same time. Did, uh, yes, I have. And like I said before, it's a history, weird connection yeah. to home. Kind of, a, kind of a, this science I like too is you know some of these stars that you're seeing don't exist anymore. Okay. You know because it takes so long for the light to get to Earth. So it's almost even looking back, and it seems like you're looking back in time. Wow. So yeah. this is. To me, it's something I'll appreciate the rest of my life. Yeah. I remember sitting in Vietnam and looking at stars and and the same thing, just marvel at the majesty Mm -hmm. of it and feeling how small we were. But I remember looking at a star and thinking that my family could see that at the same time. And it was like this really strange connection to home. I mean, almost a physical connection to home that that I I, I grew to really rely on and appreciate. So uh, so while you're there, let me ask you about your your parents and were they able to communicate with you and how how was uh, their following of you? At first, they we weren't able to communicate much. Um, So where I was at um, on our little base it was like company size element so a little over 100 of us we had one satellite phone for the whole company to share to call our families on so it was really hard i mean one with time trying to make time to call your family and two like trying to track down where this phone is how much time i can have on it i didn't when i first got there didn't call my family my uh my dad being who my my dad is and you know he says connections in military he got a hold of my co and i remember coming back from a mission one time i just got back to our tent put myself in the bunk my co comes in the door it's like peter you have to go call your parents right now (laughs) especially your mom (laughs) yeah and like for me i thought because i I was a little selfish. I wasn't really thinking about my parents, my friends and family at the time. I was thinking about me. It's easier for me to not deal with what's going on at home if I'm not communicating with them. You know, it's just easier for me if I, you know, if I don't see it, it doesn't exist. You know, so if I just kind of put in that box, it was just easier for me to cope. And at this point too, you know, my first ID blast was a week after being there. You know, so like I really didn't know what to say or how to, you know, talk to my parents, you know, be like, you know, it's not like I was at day camp or something like, oh, how are you? <laughs> oh, good. You know, I yeah. just got blown up the other day, yeah. but, you know, I'd say it, you know, we're, yeah, no, you know, so I, I didn't know how to. And um, later on through the deployment, we, it did get a little better with communications. It was probably a little after halfway through our year deployment where we um, did have some internet connection and a few more phones. So I could at least call home on a semi-regular basis, um, which made it a little easier. Call home, but you still would not share the dangers or the experiences you were having, I'm guessing. Not not a lot of it. I remember there was one time I was talking to my best friend, um, and we started taking uh, indirect fire, so like mortar fire. And I was on the phone with him, and we were taking this fire, and I was essentially like, I got to go, and just hung up. It was like a week or two later, I was talking to him. He's like, 
was it mortars and rockets going off in the background? I saw talking like, oh yeah, that's why I had to go. Like, you know, just another day at the office. You know? <laughs> really, mortars and rockets, just another day at the office. Okay, Peter. So you are now. Let, let's move up to the point where you're getting ready to go home. Uh, how did you feel about leaving Afghanistan behind, the buddies behind, and what were your expectations uh, for when you did return home? So I didn't want to leave. It's actually, I didn't even want to leave Afghanistan. I wanted to stay. I actually volunteered to stay longer to help the new unit, but they, they, I, it got denied and they sent me home. I just felt like my mission wasn't done. And I just felt like, you know, now I have this experience. I know what's going on. I know how to deal with this. I'd rather be here to deal with this and have these brand new 18, 19 year olds come and have to learn all this. We go through all this. You know, so I just, it was really hard for me to essentially take the, take off that burden. I didn't want to give it up because I didn't want other people to go through it. I essentially, I wanted to be responsible for everything. I wanted to be the one to deal with it. Let me deal with the bad, let me deal with the stress, let me deal with the pain, you know? And I always in my mind is like, no matter what happens, I can deal with it later. I can figure it out later. I'm fine. I don't care. You know, and I just, I wasn't ready to let someone else take that on. So you are the old, 20-year-old, experienced soldier who wasn't going to yet a, let a, a young whippersnapper at 19, one year younger than you, take over. That's the experience and how quickly it comes and how p- profound it can be in a very short period of time, which we're, we're only talking about, I'm, I'm guessing, a year that you're, yeah. you're there. That's how profound it is. But that is that is so important to know for understanding the military because we do turn it over. We go through the series of getting our experience. And, of course, the people that are coming in behind us who are new look to you for that experience. Look to you. They watch you to see what is the actual experience. Okay, we have the training. What's the actuality here on the ground? So they're gaining that from you. And there is that, that whole it's uh, part of the experience where they just going to have to get it themselves by, by experience, by going out and do, doing what you're doing. But how, how commendable for you, Peter, to, to want to stay on and take on that responsibility. Uh, how, how did you decide to look past that and just say, well, I got to go. So when, because whenever I should join the army, I'm like, you know, I had my mind like, well, you know, I'll do the minimum, but maybe I'll make this career. Maybe I'll stay in. I ended up getting out um, maybe because everyone was telling me I need to, you know, after being through so many explosions and stuff, I need to go take time for me. And, you know, at that point, our unit wasn't deploying anymore. If I went to a different unit, there's no guarantee that I would go back to Afghanistan or get deployed. So I decided to take everyone's advice and try to, you know, get out and try to take some of that stress off myself. Um, I did have a plan to, um, my best friend, since I met, um, in a freshman year of high school, we are you know, best friends, we're still best friends to this day that when I got out of the army, he would be finishing up a uh, gunsmithing school. We would, um, start our own business and open up a gun store. So when I got, when I did get out of the army, I took, um, about a half a year off just to, for me to kind of figure out where I was and who I, who I am, um, and then I went back to work, you know, not soon after that, because to me, working really helped me to kind of ignore what was going on. If I was always busy doing something, 
it gave me less time to think about what I was actually, what I actually done, what I've been through. So I was just constantly always working and just trying to move past what I did without actually dealing with it, you know, looking at it in the face and, you know, so would it, would it be fair? Would it be fair to say, Peter, that you were burying it, preoccupying your mind, so you yes. didn't have to think about it? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And certainly understandable uh, to deal with that, because I, I, I'm not sure about this in your experience, but for me, I just didn't know how to deal with that experience. I didn't know how to resolve it. I didn't know when the, the reactions came up. For example, and I'll ask you, how was your sleep when you got home? Uh, it, it 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 was rough for a while. I couldn't sleep. A lot of it is I just didn't want to sleep either. I was always awake. Um, I mean, you can only stay awake so long before your body tells you, you no, know, like you're at least sleeping a little bit here. Um, but when I would sleep, it wouldn't be long. It wouldn't be good sleep. I was never rested. You know, that led into um, drinking to try to help me sleep too, uh, dealing with a lot of that. And, you know, when I came back to, I just felt very uh, disconnected. You know, when I got out of the army, I kind of figured life would just pick up where I left it. And that's, that's not how life works. And, you know, yeah, I was gone for, you know, a year in Afghanistan, but life kept on continuing people making relationships, people had their own stuff going on, you know, and instead of me, you know, coming home, picking up like this with my friends and family where I left it. No, you know, it's, you know, they, they went and did things too, whether it be college or work or um, get engaged or whatever it is. And it just felt like, okay, I missed all this time. Didn't know how to connect with them. Um, one, one experience that really, I still look back today, um, it was when I was on my post-deployment leave from Afghanistan. So I was still in the army, but I was back from Afghanistan. I went with a lot of my high school friends to, um, it's called Country Fest. It's up in uh, Kadat, Wisconsin. It's a big country music festival where you spend almost a week there. You're camping, you're enjoying good music, you know, drinking, having a good time with friends. Well, the little camp spots you're on are really tiny and you have random people camping right next to you, like any, you know, music festival thing, you know, where people are at. Um, I remember there was one night I was going to bed and it was probably one in the morning, you know, we've all been drinking, you know, had a good time everyone's falling asleep and I'm sleeping in our little uh, pop-up camper and I hear our neighbors um, going like, Hey, did you bring the half stick or a quarter stick of dynamite? And I'm sitting here like trying to sleep. Like, wait, did I hear that? Right? Like, did, do, do these people just say they have dynamite? I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, you know, no. Well, they, they did have dynamite and they blew up a piece of dynamite. So I'm laying there the rest of the night, you know, obviously didn't sleep. Like what the heck, what the heck? Well, in the morning when all my friends woke up, you know, went to them like, guys, did you hear the neighbors last night blew up dynamite like next to our camper? Well, they were all drinking and they were passed out. Not one of them heard it. So Derek, Peter, you're making this up. You're, that didn't happen, you know, whatever. So I'm sitting there by myself, like, did I imagine this? Did I, you know, you know, is this is something because I just got back from Afghanistan? Is this just something I'm just still dealing with? Or, and I could hear my friends whispering, like saying they're worried about me. Should they call my parents? Who should they call? And I never felt so alone as I did right then. I just wanted to leave, go back to my unit in Alaska and be with my army family because I knew regardless if they believed me or not, they would support me. 
Well, as we're sitting there, one of the people we're with was still sleeping. He finally gets up. First thing he does, like, hey, guys, the neighbors last night, they let me uh, use this stick of dynamite, and I got to light and blow up the dynamite. <laughs> and so I didn't imagine it. It happened. Yeah. Just somehow no one heard it, even though it was just, you know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Only one friend came up to me, and this is my best friend, came up to me and apologized. And, you know, and talked to me. He's like, look, you know, I understand you've been through stuff. He's like, I should have just been there and believed you or supported you regardless. No one else apologized. No one else talked to me. No one else admitted they were wrong. And I still look back at that today. And that's what, like, when I finally did get out of the Army, that's one thing that really kept me disconnected from a lot of my friends and family was that experience. We are speaking with uh, Peter Baruki, who's a former infantry soldier serving his time in Afghanistan, is now coming home and explaining the reactions he's having. Peter, are there other reactions you were having, other things that uh, you were unexpected um, to come up against when you came home? A a big thing for me was I didn't like being in overpopulated areas. um, I, I grew up and lived in Waukesha, and, you know, Waukesha's not far from Milwaukee, so, you know, I'm not not used to bigger cities, but when I got out, I just, it, it took a lot out of me just to drive to Milwaukee because there was just too much going on. It was essentially like sensor overload for me, you know, because especially coming back from Afghanistan, where I'm constantly looking at, okay, is this, you know, civilian here? Are they going to start shooting at me? Is there ID here? Even when I was driving through Milwaukee, any person walking on the street, any car, any movement, I had to look and observe and see everything that was going on. It was just so overwhelming all the time. Like I said it was a sensory overload for me, and it was just so draining. And you know, I just ended up being so irritated. That, so, so that that sense of hyper vigilance, aware, looking out for anything that might be harmful, uh, and, and the reaction that you have is anger. To, yeah. n- not to the fact that there might be something there or not there, but that you're still hypervigilant and you're home and there really shouldn't be any reason for being that. Is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, a- absolutely. And I would just, I never real, like for a long time, I didn't realize it because I kept on trying to, you know, put everything in a, you know, a mental box. Like, no, I'm home now, I'm fine. Let's just move forward. But I never realized by me doing this, it was actually creating a lot of anger and rage and irritation. And when I would talk to even friends, family, and other people, I would just show a lot of this rage and anger. And it's not like I'm mad at them or they're doing anything to make me angry. And it took a long time for like my best friend to finally sit me down and be like, look, man, I love you. But this is how we feel. I never realized how much me not dealing with what I went through was affecting my loved ones. I, I want to stay on that point because this is very, very important. And I want to thank you for bringing that point up. What, uh, oftentimes when we come home and it was my experience, it was about me. I was dealing with the hypervigilance. I was dealing with the panic attacks. I was dealing with the rage, the anger, the guilt, the shame, all these reactions I was having. Number one, I didn't know what the reactions were, why I was having them, and I didn't know how to resolve them. The first thing I wanted to do was hide them. So I automatically started building a facade that nobody was going to get behind and, and, and understand who I really was or what was really going on inside. But it was all about me. And I didn't find out till years later when my sister 
Mary came up to me and she said, Mike, your family has to heal too. Is that something that you experienced with your family, with your friends, that it was more about you than a concern that they would also, they had also, especially our mothers, had been through extraordinary experiences? Absolutely. You know, because I thought I was helping and doing what's better for everyone else by me just ignoring what was going on with me. I just, you know, I, you know, it's my problem. It's my issue. Let me deal with it. You know, you're, you were never in war. You don't understand what I'm going through. There's no way you can understand. Just, you know, deal with your life and everything's fine. But that's, that's not a case. You know, there is um, another big, up, a big wake up call for me was a little after I got out of the army, I was, uh, it was during winter and like right before, like right to begin winter. So we're kind of still like rains, but snows or rains or freezes. I was standing in my garage smoking a cigarette and I was talking to my brother. My mom just got home and she was walking down the driveway and I knew she was there, but she was behind me. I had my back towards her and the driveway is slippery because uh, the snow rain is, you know, it's freezing. She, she slips and she just had a knee replacement too. And she slipped and she put her um, hand on my shoulder just to brace herself. So she didn't fall. Even though I knew she was there, as soon as she touched my shoulder, I reacted, I spun around, I grabbed her and I had my fist up. Like I was you know about to strike her. And it was the last, at the last second, I realized, no, this is my mom. This is no, you know, she was just trying, you know, and it, it was a big wake up call for me because no part of me wanted to hurt anyone. No part of me wanted to inflict pain, but it was, I was just so reacting to anything. Well, to survival, a, a natural yeah. instinct that I still am firmly believe it, it's just activated when we're at war and it doesn't automatically shut off just because we've come home. And when that does happen now, I don't know if this happened with you. It happened with me. Now I'm starting to think that there's something mentally wrong with me. There's something wrong with my brain that I'm doing this now, uh, as you said, with your experience with your mother. So was did the drinking become a problem or an issue, or did the emotional isolation become a problem for you? It, it all did. Um, the, the, the drinking, I was able to rain in pretty, pretty quickly. Um, cause at that point I started, you know, I had friends and family talking to me and I started realizing that, yeah, look, I do need to talk to someone. I need to stop hiding and ignoring what I've been through and I need to start addressing this and I, I need to talk to someone. And right. yeah, go, go ahead. I was going to ask you, and I hope you don't mind this today. You are today. You are engaged to be married. But at that time, when you're coming home, how was it to develop relationships with other people? Could you let people emotionally close to you that you could uh, have the relationship you have now uh, with an intention of getting married? No, no, I, I, I couldn't. If I met my fiance when I just got out of the army, if we were to meet, I don't think we would have been a couple. Um, you know, right then wasn't, wasn't a good time for me to go on dates. Um, I, I did try go and date and try, you know, find a relationship, but no, I was, like you said, I was very close. I didn't like sharing. And I was in the point too, it's like, especially on a first date where it's awkward enough, um, you know, and I'd be on a date with whoever and they start talking about like, well, I gone to college and did this, or they talk essentially to talk about their life. And to me, it just seems so sheltered or just so ignorant or just nothing I can connect with. 
and just be like, all right, yeah, no, won't see each other again and go find someone else to date. And, you know, it was just a cycle of never ending of, I could, you know, one, it wasn't fair to them because I didn't show them who I truly was. And two, I would just dismiss who they were almost right away. And, and when you when you mentioned that you weren't uh, able to share, we're not talking about sharing your popcorn in the movie theater. You're talking about yeah. sharing emotionally who you are, intellectually who you are, letting people close to you. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and that that's a very lonely place to be. It, but again, was it something that you understood why that was happening? A, a bit of me did. It knew, but I would say I was also in denial. Is I didn't want to believe like my military experience was a caught or as part of the cause of what I'm going through. And I just, I, a lot of it was, I was lying to myself is I don't have a problem. Everyone else has a problem. You know, it's, you know, they just don't, you know, they're just soft. They don't know, you know, when someone's joking around, they don't know how to deal with it. They're just, you know, that's their problem. It's not my problem, but it, it was just me lying to myself. Uh, so now you've experienced this with your mom, your, with your parents, with your friends, with relationships that weren't working out. So now how do you get to and lead us up to where you become a peer mentor and what you are doing now with R&R House, which is so spectacular. But first you had to go through your own facing up and, and resolving the issues you were have. You didn't just become a peer mentor. How did you get from that point where you just finished talking about where you're, you're distant, emotionally distant, you've got the anger, you've had these experiences. Take us from there. What went happened to get you to be a peer mentor? Well, I, uh, I ended up calling our local, our lo- my local uh, CVSO. And um, I heard from that, her, I didn't know what a CVSO was. Maybe you could share that with our so audience. It was a, a county a veteran service officer. So every county has one and they help veterans in pretty much in any way that, you know, they can help you, you know, they, they advocate for you, they help you for your benefits, they help you find resources. You know, um, I recommend every veteran, even as soon as you get a military, contact your CVSO. Um, I, did, I didn't know what a CVSO was. My dad, he, um, one of the people he worked with was a younger veteran also. And he told my dad that I should contact the CVSO. I'm like, you know what, fine, I'll, I'll call them. You know, if I don't like what I'm hearing, I can always just hang up or walk out, you know, but I was like, you know, I'll at least, you know, go and see what's going on. So I contacted my CVSO, we sat down, we talked about different things, talked about uh, gain disability rating, gain help, um, went to the VA for a lot of stuff, talked to, you know, they had me talk to, different psychiatrists and doctors. And it was difficult for me because I couldn't really connect to any of them that they assigned me to because none of them were military. And it seemed like every time I was finally starting to open up or talk about something, it almost, to me, it felt like I was just talking to a wall. Like, you know, like, okay, if they're not really going to pay attention or they don't really understand what I'm talking about, because I have to stop every two minutes to explain what this abbreviation is or what that is, you know, it would just honestly make me more frustrated. And at this point, it's like, well, look, now I am trying to, you know, get help. And now I feel like it's it's not there. But what what uh, I went back to my CVSO and he told me about this counselor that they have that comes from the uh, Milwaukee Veterans Center, who's also a veteran. 
And like, okay, I'll give him a talk. The second I sat down, the first time meeting him, it was a world of difference. You know, just being able to talk to someone else who was in the military. And, you know, he was, um, he was deployed in Iraq. But so we were in two different wars, but we were just able to connect and sit down right away. And that got, I think on day one, I just, I opened up and just started spewing everything, talking everything. And it, afterwards, it felt so healing. It felt like the, these, these weights that had been on my shoulder for, for several years finally just seemed lighter. You know, I, it was a good experience for me. When you say that these experiences, that these weights on your shoulder, for me, and I don't know if you could share this, Peter, it was these unresolved things that I didn't understand. They were there. I didn't expect them. If we go back to when you said you were coming home, you expected to go back to your friends and life as it had been before. You, you did not say when you came home that all of these issues were there, like the hypervigilance, the driving in traffic, all of these things. So a lot of these things were things that just needed to be resolved. And you've taken that first step. Would you say that, and I know probably people are going to say you're putting words in his mouth, that first step to go to the CVSO, to go to see the vets, uh, the vets center um, um, counselor, and really a peer support, was that the biggest step? Oh, a- absolutely. Because doing that was led me to become a certified peer supporter and um, work with other veterans. So after I went to the CV uh, or saw this counselor, some for a couple of years, but I was still working um, in the gun industry at this point. So after a couple of years, uh, after we got the gun store open, working at it after about five years, I realized I I need to move on and do something else with my life because at this point I really wanted to help other people. I really wanted to get other people, you know, to to see that there, there, there is a good light at the end of the tunnel. You know, you're not stuck. There is a way to move forward. And I wanted to be able to do something where I've had this good experience where I've been able to move on. I want to be able to give this to others. And so when I talked to my counselor, um, he told me um, about um, Mental Health America, that they're opening up a peer-run respite for veterans, and it's all going to be staffed by veterans peer supporters. And it sounded interesting to me. At the time, I had no idea what a peer supporter was. Uh, I'll, I'll be honest, it's uh, still a very new thing. But, you know, he, he explained to me, he's like, well, you know, really, it's someone with uh, life-shared experience who's, you know, has different traumas, who's had, you know, substance abuse issues or mental health. And, you know, we're now able to take these experiences and work with other people who have similar experiences and to show them that there is hope and there is paths to, you know, and it's, it's been great. It's, I, I haven't been happy uh, this happy in years. And, and that hope that you're talking about, that experience, that's exactly what you found when you met this Iraq war veteran at the vet center. Yeah. He gave you that hope. So now after you've done it, you're, you're slowly regaining up to this experience after several years where now this enlightenment, and uh, that's all I can say, this is education. You educated yourself. You went and found these people that could help you, but there's an element of trust there. Speak to me about that element of trust when you met this other veteran and that you offer to the veterans who come to to the R&R house. And I just want to add, as an aside, maybe a military humor. I didn't know what a respite was. <laughs> so maybe you could explain the R&R house and, and that trust and, and what's there. And what exactly do you offer as a peer 
mentor and what does the R&R house offer? Well, right away, trust for me is if I know someone's a veteran, I don't care how long they've served in military, what their job was in the military, what branch, even though we know the Army's still the best branch. Um, (laughs) To me, that trust is already built. You know, I already have that trust. I, you know, I don't know exactly what that individual has gone through, but there's a lot of things that where we can already connect on and we have shared experience and very similar experience and things where I already have that trust, you know, with, with, with that veteran. And it, it it's just a powerful thing. And it, it's every time I talk to someone who's a veteran, it just seems like I'm saying hi to uh, an old friend, even though it's someone I've never met before. It's already, you know, that awkwardness of who are you? Who am I? Like, do I need to prove myself or you got to prove yourself? There's no need to, need for that. Right. It's this is who I am. This is who you are. And we can connect. I, and, I think that is certainly one of the reasons we started the podcast was we have, we are veterans who have been there. We know what it's like to be depressed. We know the alcohol, we know the rage, we know the isolation. We know a lot of those difficulties that come along the way. And one of the things I'll ask you, Peter, when you're doing this, you get to a point where, the passion and going back and helping other veterans is because you've been there, but you actually see yourself in the veteran a little bit. You see your experience in them, the common sharing, and that's what you're able to help heal and to help uh, provide some answers and education for is that whole thing of your passion to go back and bring somebody forward who's where you used to be. Yeah, absolutely. It's a peer supporter we get, not only do we put ourselves out there and, you know, give to other peers and help, but we get, we get in return, you know, it's therapeutic for us as well. It helps us out, you know, be able to share these experiences. So we're, it is a very good give and take relationship We're we're both helping each other out. It's not me just helping one person and I'm not getting out of it. We're, we're in this together. We're walking side by side. We're helping each other out. And there is hope. Yes. And, and there is really a beautiful, exciting life out there, uh, you know, once you resolve the issues. But you have to resolve the issues. That's, that's, that's really the responsibility. And only the person with the issues can really step forward honestly and say, I want to resolve these. Yes. Yeah. You know, you, for me, I had to take the first step. And I, you, as an individual, you have to take that first step. If you want help, you want hope, you have to go for it. You have to, you know, help yourself. The only person that knows you as best is yourself. You're the only one who knows you so well. You need, you know, you have to take that first step. Right. Or, or you're really the only person who can get to know you yeah. as well as you need to get to know yeah. you so that you can go on. Let, let me ask you just, uh, and this is just uh, for, for fun. Uh, how does your mom feel about you now, <laughs> where you are today and where you've come? Oh, great. Uh, me and my parents, we have a great relationship. <laughs> you know, they, they, you know, we're always having dinner, always trying to do things together. We're, you know, it's just a great relationship. I, I honestly don't think I could have a better relationship with my parents than I do. That's even even after she she confronted you in the driveway after you were about to, to soccer when she fell. Uh, you're you're doing all right now. So there's always hope for the relationship to improve. And and now you're you're engaged and you're getting married. That's got to be so fulfilling for you as the next step, healthy step in your life. 
Oh, it's great. Um, If you have asked me four or five years ago, if I was thinking of, you know, starting a family, having kids, you know, gain, you know, really having a life, I would really, I'll probably give you some sort of answer like, ah, if it happens, it happens, whatever. You know, this is the first time in a long time where I've really sat and I I see a future, you know, me and um, my fiance will sit there and we'll talk about, you know, future kids that we'll have, where we would like to live, our dream house, our careers we would like to do, you know, essentially sharing this life with another person for the rest of your life. And it's, it's beautiful. Wait, would you call it the internal intimacy can now be shared? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. What, take, take a couple minutes, just explain the R&R house, where it is, how people can connect to it, what the website is, what the phone numbers are, all the connections. It's a seven-day availability, and give them the details uh, because it's so very important. And I myself, uh, as I've told you, I certainly would have used this if it had been available to me. Yeah, so the R&R house is the first pure-run respite for veterans in the country. So respite is it it's a place for healing um we're we're a very non-clinical um environment so it's not like go and see um a psychiatrist or going you know or different other clinical settings you know we're in a residential area in a house a beautiful property in uh, southeastern wisconsin and um so any veteran as long as you identify as a veteran and you're a wisconsin resident um you can you you can call us and uh, spend up to a week. You don't have to spend a week, but you can spend a week with us if you just need some time for to relax and get away from all the day to day normal day stresses. You just need a breather, or you need other vets or um, you know, other people with similar um, experiences to talk to. That's what we're here for. So you can come stay with us. You know, take that breather. Um, you know, talk to us if you want to talk, if you, you know, need time and don't want to talk, that's all up to you. We don't force anyone to do anything they don't want to do. You know, as peer supporters, we're all about choices and we, you know, and encourage everyone to make their own choices. And we want to be about, you know, choices, your life. Um, we do operate a 24 seven warm line, um, which, uh, is 262 336 9540. And this is also our phone number for anyone who is interested in staying at the R&R house. So if you give us a call and that's the best way to get a hold of us, um, then we can go through the process um, for anyone who wants to stay at the house. If you just want to spend 20 minutes on phone to talk to someone, you know, you had a bad day at work or whatever, and you just need to take some stress off, give us a call. We'll, you know, we'll stay on the phone. We'll talk, you know, anything you need to talk about. If you're looking for different resources, any or different events, anything going out there, give us a call. We'll help you with that too. We'll, you know, we're, we're here for veterans. So anything that we can do to help, we will try our best. Yeah. One of the attractions that I like the best, because a lot of us don't talk about this, but a lot of us have experienced that. And that is some of the arguments that we can get in domestically at home. We can get into these arguments where the rage comes out, as you mentioned earlier, the rage can come out. It's not that the rage is at that person, but the rage is there. This is a good opportunity to just put the brakes on mentally and say, look, honey, or my wife, or my girlfriend, or mom, dad, uh, I, I'm sorry I've got this anger, but I, I'm going to, I, I'm going to get away for a little while. Where are you going? I'm going to the R&R house. I'm going to get a break, talk to some veterans, take this anger where I can resolve it somewhere else. I always thought that was probably one of the more powerful reasons to go to the R&R house, was just take a break, 
from that rage and anger that a lot of us have when we come back from the military. So, but in addition to that, at the R and R house, you have a nice swimming pool. You have a workout room. You've got some relaxation rooms. You've got kitchen. Uh, it's a beautiful place. When you say it's residential, it really doesn't strike you as residential because you don't see the other houses. They're surrounded by trees across the street. I believe it's really more of a county highway. is is open fields, so it's more it's more rural than anything else. But very very peaceful. Yeah, yeah. It's very rural. Rural. Um, A lot of farmlands around here. A lot of woods. You know, it's it's very quiet. It's very peaceful. You know, we do have neighbors. You don't really see them. You know, the houses aren't on top of each other. There's definitely uh, more enough elbow room. Right. If you look around, you're only going to see nature. You're not going to yeah. see. You're not going to see a high rise or anything else that's there. It, it, this is very, very rural, very attractive, very relaxing, very peaceful. You have the gardens that you've been working on and planting, uh, the yep. flowers that are there. It's just a very, very peaceful place. But in addition to that, Peter, you also offer. At the end of seven days, you don't just turn people away. I mean, you offer them at least some resources for continued peer mentoring with other organizations or at least point them in a direction. You don't just cut them off after seven days. No, absolutely. We're not going to, No, it's not, oh, you're seven days up, there's a door, they have a nice life. No, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, as, as a guest is staying here, we will work with them with different resources or different ways where they can deal with stress or whatever the specific thing that's going on with that individual um, will help them come up with different plans. But after that seven days, we do follow-ups where let it be through email, Zoom, phone call, whatever um, is easier for that individual. We'll contact them after 30 days, 60 days, and 90 days just to check in and see, hey, how's everything going? You know, um, were you able to use any of these resources? Is there other resources maybe we should try? Do you need us to help you do a warm handoff? And when after they do stay, if they just need to call us, like we said, we have that 24-7 warm line. They can call us day or night, any day of the week. And if they just need to talk, give us a call, and we're still here. Wow, this is spectacular. Give us the telephone number one more time, Peter, and also the website. Yeah, so it's 262-336-9540. Um, the best will be our Facebook. Let me pull it up. Just make sure I have the right. It's okay. Take your time. And of course, my phone is being goofy. That's okay. We we can find it. They can, they're going to be able to find the, all of this information on our website as well at the Orban Foundation for Veterans. When we finish uh, with the podcast, we'll put up all the information and some pictures of uh, okay. uh, of the R and R house. But just a very very positive experience. I would like to ask you one more thing. We had talked about this before. Give me an opinion of what you think all the stigmas are that keep you from going to get help, that keep you from going to the vet center, that keep you going to find out about alcohol, that keep you to go and find out about the anger. What, what do you say about those stigmas? Well, you can, stigma, and you can use military language if you right. want. <laughs> so a lot of stigmas, you know, a lot of, when you hear this all the time, like this veteran has PTSD, this, he's a vet, so he's going to be an alcoholic. He's a vet, so, you know, all this different stuff. As we're in the military and as veterans, you know, we hear this too, you know, from civilians. And, you know, we get these stigmas, these judgments, you know, where they almost tell us who we are, where they don't know who we are. But, you know, I also think a lot of times when you hear this all the time, like you're going to be alcoholic or you're going to have PTSD, this is something when it's told you all the time, it's going in your brain like, 
okay, if I do have an issue, well, I'm a vet. Vets are expected to drink. I'm going to have myself a drink or I'm going to do this because it almost seems, you know, to me, it seems like, well, now at this point, this is what's expected of me. But it, 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 it's not, you know, we're all humans. We're all individuals, you know, and we, we are, like I said, we are individuals. We're just, just because I'm a veteran doesn't mean we're all going to be alcoholics or we're all going to have PTSD. We all do have different experiences and different ways that we do de- handle things in situations. Right. Let me ask you this. When you came home from Afghanistan, could you have gone through your experience there and come home and not expected to have uh, these reactions that you have, but in retrospect, don't the, don't the reactions make sense? Yeah. 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 It, it, and they do. Um, no, I, I absolutely agree. And I mean, there were times where like when I came home and dealing with that stuff uh, with Afghanistan, it's like, I do need that drink right now, you know, and you know, and for that moment, it's that's what's helped me for me. That's what was working for me at the time. But I mean, that was also me just putting a bandaid over the bigger issue. Right. You know, you know, you can't put a bandaid on a broken arm. You know, there, you know, there's other things you got to deal with. Right. More severe. And, and the other one, the hypervigilance or the anger when you're driving in the traffic, I had to come to the conclusion and learn that this hypervigilance, these were, these were reactions that at war or in the military saved my life. These were survival skills. You can't be angry at them. If you want to be angry at them today, then say, well, then they shouldn't have been there and I would have been dead a long time ago. These were things that I learned to stay alive and keep my buddies alive. Yes, they didn't turn off, but thank you that I have them. And instead of getting angry at them, understand them and accept them. I've I've been out of the service for 50 years. I still get them, but I laugh at them now because I'm thankful. I wish I could have learned other things in life as well as I've learned those, you know. So a, a lot of this is really enlightenment rather than, as you say, mental illness or PTSD or all of these other things. And that's why we call the podcast Stigma Free. Just be be aware that your experience in the military culture is something that you have control over. You can educate yourself on, and you can find a place like the R&R House and Peter Baruki to go and visit. So give us the phone number one more time. And So the phone number is 262-336-9540, and our Facebook page is R&R House Mental Health of America of Wisconsin. And there's a lot of good information on there. There's good videos, too. Um, there's a tour of the house on there as well. So if someone wants to look us up on Facebook before giving us a call, they can kind of see what the house looks like and environment. And so there's a lot of good information on there. Peter Barucki, thank you so very much. And I'm so excited. Uh, I know you're going to invite all of us to your wedding when it happens. Uh, but, yeah. I- <laughs> but, <a big> venue. <laughs> but I'm happy for you. That, that's very exciting. And congratulations on that. And thanks for all you're doing for veterans. And thanks for taking your own experience now and turning it into this respite that is uh, helping the human spirit, not just uh, the veteran, but also their families. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, we appreciate it, too. And and thank you to our audience for joining us today. And your comments are are very important in our efforts to uh, constantly improve our program. And you will find more resources uh, for the R&R House and other resources as well at our website at, uh, uh, if you use just the letters O, the letter O, the letter F, the number four, vets, V-E-T-S dot org, or the Orban Foundation for Vets, uh, veterans dot org, you will find more resources. Uh, 
always helpful to know that if you need immediate human voice, immediate help to keep the Veterans Crisis Line nearby, and that number is 1-800-273-8255, and then press 1. Or you can text to 838-255-CHAT, uh, and don't hesitate to call these people. As Peter said, as I've said, as many veterans said, taking that first step is just so important. But you find out from there, it all goes downhill. Law all gets a lot easier. And I'm going to just bring Peter in quickly. He mentioned a warm line. What is that warm line, Peter? So our warm line is it's for the, the respite. So it's available for any veteran in the state of Wisconsin. And it's free. It is uh, 262-336-9540. And it's operated 24-7. Thank you very much. And the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast is brought to you through a grant from the Charles E. Kubley Foundation. And for many who have experienced uh, thoughts of suicide, we understand that there could be a long period of punishing depression before those thoughts of suicide come in. And that's what the Ch- Charles E. Kubley Foundation is all about with their experience with depression and suicide. So reach out to them. Check on the charleseekubleyfoundation.org and they will have more resources on those topics. Uh, today's engineer is Kerry Wheaton, and for co-host Aaron Schroffnagel and Bob Bach, I am Mike Orban. And remember, this is educational, not stigmatizing. Thank you for listening to the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. While you're there, please consider making a contribution. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, and resolution on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Anyone who donates to the podcast will receive a free copy of the book, Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War, by Michael Orban. On behalf of Michael Orban, Bob Bach, and Aaron Schraufnagel, thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.